Welcome to Switchblade Sisters, where women get together to slice and dice our favorite action and genre films. I'm film critic April Wolf. Every week I invite a new female filmmaker on, a writer, director, actor, producer, and we talk in depth about their fave genre film, maybe one that influenced their own work. Today, I'm so very happy to welcome director Tamara Davis. Hi. Hi. How are you? I'm quite well. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. (laughs) (laughs) Um, For those who are not as familiar with Tamara's work, let me give you a little rundown on her career. As a young and her career director, Tamara made a name for herself in music videos, working with bands like Depeche Mode, The Smiths, The Bangles, Faith No More, Tone Loke, MC Light, Sonic Youth, and yes, even New Kids on the Block and Hanson. I remember those videos very, very vividly. Um, Her feature film directorial debut was 1992's Gun Crazy, starring Drew Barrymore as a, you guessed it, gun crazy teen who murders her abusive stepfather, then seduces her prisoner pen pal back into the life of crime he was trying to put behind him. Part road movie, part thriller, part action, part dark comedy, this film took Tamara into a very interesting direction because her next film was the Chris Rock cult comedy CB4, which starred Rock as a rap artist pretending to be a thug to make a name for himself in the music industry. From there, she directed Billy Madison, Best Men, Crossroads, before moving into TV and directing episodes of Ugly Betty, Single Ladies, You're the Worst, Younger, and The Santa Clarita Diet. In 2010, she also released an intimate documentary on her old friend, the late artist Jean-Michel Basquiat. So, Tamara... Yes. You chose to talk about today Paul Feig's The Heat. Yes. Can you tell me a little bit about why you chose that film to speak about? Well, I, um, you asked me what genre, and I was like comedy. And then recently I've been watching um, some – I've been trying to watch female comedies because I love that genre, and I'd love to make a female comedy. And so I, um, I just – I have to say, like, I just love The Heat. Like, that is really one of my favorite movies. It delivers. It's funny. It's – it's got every it's it's just like one of the best movies so i yeah. love it in terms of action too yeah. this is i mean we'll talk about this but action in this movie is is very well done it's hard to you know action comedy is very difficult to do um we'll get into this but I'm going to let people know, for those who haven't seen The Heat, today's episode will give you some spoilers, but that shouldn't stop you from listening before you watch. My motto is that it's not what happens, but how it happens that make the mo- makes a movie worth watching. Still, if you want to pause and peep The Heat first, now's your time. <laughs> and hopefully you're back. And let's introduce The Heat. I'm going to give a quick rundown on the synopsis here. Written by Katie Dippold and directed by Paul Feig in 2013, The Heat pairs up Sandra Bullock and Melissa McCarthy in a buddy cop action comedy. Bullock plays egotistical FBI agent Sarah Ashburn, who's sent to Boston to work on a case where she meets loudmouth detective Shannon Mullins, played by McCarthy. The two are oil and water until they start to work together. They discover that Mullins' brother, Jason, played by Michael Rappaport, is connected to notorious drug kingpin Larkin. Mullen's big Irish family still hates her for having a hand in putting Jason away in prison for a while, but Jason's got no hard feelings, and he gives them some clues. They, The two women engage in some harsh, testicle-threatening interrogation techniques, but bust up a drug shipment and eventually go after the big guy Larkin after Larkin tries to kill Jason for betraying him. Luckily, the aggro Mullins has an otherworldly stash of weapons and ammo at the ready, and they suit up for a final showdown with the bad guys, only to get captured. With a little teamwork, though, they figure out their way of the jam, and uh, they save the day, not once, but a few times. Um, That's 
that's the heat, but it's hard to describe, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a classic buddy cop, co- you know, it's like a buddy comedy with two women. Usually you've seen that so many times with men. So yes. to see these two women in it and to see, for me to see Sandra Bullock, like, playing funny, you know, like, I mean, I know she's funny, but I don't know. I think somehow with Melissa McCarthy, like, anything is on the table when you have Melissa there. Like, she just will go anywhere for a joke and... Like, I could just, I think she's amazing. Yes, she is. Um, I, you know, it's nice that you said, like, this is a buddy cop comedy. But for a long time, this film was actually called Untitled Female Buddy Cop Comedy. Oh, see? (laughs) That's what it is. Yeah. Yeah. I find that hilarious. I mean, it's exactly what the movie is. And yet you still can't say that that's exactly what it is because it is in the execution. I think it's really wonderful that the studio trusted Paul Feig there are a lot of action sequences in this. And he was doing straight comedy where there was, you know, you didn't have to have uh, 10 pyrotechnic experts on set to handle these explosions. And I feel like that must have been kind of nerve wracking because this is, you know, it doesn't, this film didn't have a huge budget, but it did have a big star. Sandra Bullock, I believe at that time, like she had maybe even already won the Academy Award um, uh, for Blindside at that point, if I can, uh-huh. I'm trying yeah, to yeah. think. Yeah, she was big. She's she always was, been big. She's always been big. I mean, <laughs> yeah. like after Speed, it was just like you couldn't stop her. Yeah. So you're like, you've got the, you know, this A-list star in your comedy. Right. And then you're also got a ton of explosives. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <It's laughs> and, a... You know, how, I feel like that has to be a really difficult thing to to handle as a director. I mean, like when you your first movie, you guys had a bunch of guns. Yeah, on set. I feel like the weird thing that uh, it, that has to do with special effects and all that. That I feel like the thing is, is that because um, I, I get asked that all the time, like, oh, can you do action? And I've done a lot of action, and I'm so grateful for all the action that I've done. But I definitely get into situations where I'm inevitably sitting, uh, you know, around a table and. I don't want to say it's like 10 men or whatever, but they look at me and they're like, can you do action? Mm -hmm. And here's the thing with action. It's it's not that it's that hard to do. Like you really have to, um, you know, do your research, figure out how you want to shoot it, like just the same way you're going to approach almost every scene. But the thing is, is that you work with talented people that that's their specialty. So when I'm doing an action sequence, like I have the best special effects person. I have the best stunts person. Mm -hmm. I have like a team with me. So it's not just me like going rogue, like, hey, flip over that chair. Like, (laughs) you know, you work with like incredible people. So you're collaborating with some of the best people that have done like the most incredible incredible action sequences. And so it's part of your ability as a director to learn how to, you know, involve them and and have them participate so that you're actually not just like, I know how to do this. I'm going to put three cameras under the car. Like, actually, as a woman, I find it really interesting because I'll listen to their advice and I'll I'll look at what they say and I'm like, actually, that's not how I want to see it. I want to see it like this. But, but, you know, and I'll, and I'll, I'll let them participate and actually help me. Mm-hmm. Which is awesome. <laughs> I think you know, uh, I went to the visit uh, set visit for uh, A Wrinkle in Time a while back. And I remember Ava DuVernay, it was you know her first big kind of special effects right. thing. And the producers, what they said, they're like, we're so happy that when we hired her that we heard her ask questions of just like, oh, I don't know how to do that. Can you tell me how to do that? Exactly. And that's, um, I think a lot of people, you know, they would assume that the director just knows going in. But there are people who are more experienced possibly in other areas that you can con- constantly consult with, right? Yeah, you're not... Th- a 
film crew is gigantic usually, you know, or even whatever it is you're doing, you're working with people. Rarely are you just the one person shooting, doing everything on your own. And so, I mean, I find that that's my favorite thing in the world is to work with talented people, like to have a DP that's like, you know, can give you a look that you're like, hey, I am doing this thing and I need it to look like a Marvel, you know, shot because it's got to get intercut with something from, a, you know, the new Marvel movie. How do you, you know, you work with people that know how to do this. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I can show you pictures of research or do my work and be like, this is how I want this drive-by to look like and, you know, go over and, you know, kind of have a really good idea. But, you know, I'm working with incredibly talented people that I'm so grateful to have. Well, let's talk about some of the low budget stuff that you've done because CB4 had a very low budget. It did. I mean, it was both my CB4, Billy Madison and Half Baked were three movies that I did. And I did them like we produced them. They were under each of them were under 10 million. They were like six to, you know, six million, something like that. And I made them in Canada and some in Los Angeles. But um, really what was amazing is the studio just kind of let let me loose with those comedians and let me find their voice and find um, the film for them. Mm-hmm. So they weren't so involved. So, you know, we used whatever, you know, whatever we could we could use. And and I feel like that in a way that kind of created its own style. And I was definitely being influenced by them and by their, you know, they they'd been, you know, especially Billy you know, not Billy, but especially Adam Sandler and Chris Rock had been raised with SNL. Mm -hmm. So it was very skit comedy. And when you're doing more skit comedy, you kind of, you go anywhere for a joke that it's not necessarily like a movie that's like, you know, all takes place in one place. Like if there's a, you know, those films, all three of those films have little flash moments of anything that could be funny will change camera styles and cut to it. And um, I don't know, I feel like that's just the form. I mean, that seems so hard, though. Changing camera styles and then cutting to it if you see that in, like, maybe a first take, right? And then you redo a scene... To, to get what you want the the second and then and go from there like you're always redoing a scene or no 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 more like um no just like I mean I feel like what's also interesting to to keep it about the craft is like when you do a comedy you have to have a good script so your script already is funny so you're reading it and you know there's laughs in there then what I like to do is I like I'm very efficient I very I'm very pre-planned. I like to go on the set and I like it to be very light and easy so that when a comedian comes and enters onto my set, mm-hmm. they're th- they're just there to be funny and we're all ready and waiting for them to be funny. They're not waiting on us. They come on the set. It's funny and we're all in a funny mood. Like I'm doing a comedy right now and with television and I want I like to keep my set in a place where my AD is about to laugh or my gaffer, you know, is about to laugh. Like everybody is in tune like that. And you want to make sure that those actors, you know, you get a couple things as written and then you let them do a couple takes very loosely and let them kind of have fun with it and try to experiment a little. And, you know, those are, you know, those are skills that you use when you're trying to direct comedy. It's it's interesting because uh, Paul Feig, when he was talking about like the making of this, he was saying that if you shoot a comedy just with the script, you're already in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> Which I think is something, yeah. you know, like the script has to be great. Obviously, Katie Dippold's yeah. great as, uh, yeah. script is amazing. But she apparently was sitting behind him yeah. and was um, handing him post-it notes of jokes whenever she All would think of them. All the time. All the time. I mean, 
that's how I was raised. When you're doing a comedy, you're sitting next to comedy writers, and they're that's all they're doing is they're they're sitting around you, and everybody's primed to laugh and primed to keep everybody laughing. So you'll have somebody like a Tim Hurley, he constantly like, and then it's funny because when he says it's it's not that funny, but he'll translate it to Adam, and then somehow he knows how to say something that when Adam delivers it, it's funny. Mm-hmm. So you're constantly sitting there, and they're throwing out lines for you, like you know, and you're and I'm either telling the actor like another version, say it like this, do it like that. Either I'm saying that or once in a while we'll cut and a writer will come up and ask them or we'll have a conversation. But yeah, it you have to find the comedy, you know, in every single scene. And you have to be laughing like this was the craziest thing we've ever done, you know, before you've left that scene. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, but I want to get back uh, when we come back. We'll, we'll talk about developing um, relationships with actors. Okay. Time. Okay, we'll be right back. We're going to take a quick break from this discussion with Tamara Davis to talk about the Max Fun Drive. I'm here with Ingu Kang talking about the Max Fun Drive and why you should consider becoming a, a member, a donating member of Maximum Fun. Why should anyone become a donating member, April? Well, gosh, (laughs) because Maximum Fun brings so many hours of entertainment into your ear holes every week, including Switchblade Sisters. Is part of that supposed to be the phrase ear hole? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's right here in the script, ear hole. There's no script. So, Ingu, why do you think people should care about women directors and the show? So I think one thing that's really important about Switchblade Sisters is the fact that there's a sort of, like, normalization of uh, women as creative people, as, like, um, thinkers behind a camera, even sort of as, like, auteurs, right? Yeah. Because usually our idea of genius is, like, really weirdly gendered, even though I'm sure, like, everybody out there listening right now knows tons of smart women. And yeah, but they're not geniuses. They're not. They're not a genius. Like that's uh... okay. So I'm just gonna assume that this is what you're saying about every single guest on their, your show. Like they're not a genius. So I think like the idea of like saying like this is actually who they are and what they sound like, and they haven't really had like a chance to sound like this or to be themselves for interviewers. Like I think like that normalization is really important. But maybe you don't think so. No. I mean, <laughs> so the normalization, I think, is a great point to bring up. The fact that, like, any of these listeners who are getting all of this um, information from Switchblade Sisters, that they will inevitably, I think, put some um, of the work from these women directors on their to-watch list. Like, that's a, that's amazing to me that someone might hear us, hear about a movie, and then um, put it on their iTunes list or go to the video store, which I always recommend, and picking out, you know, a, a female director's work or tracking it down. I love Drea um, came on, like, uh, last week, Drea Clark came on and said that one of her friends tracked down a very difficult-to-find movie that we talked about because it was directed by one of the guests. I think it's also just, like, nice to have regular inspiration material, you know? I mean, I guess, like, you could get it from, like, I don't know, the internet, but I feel like having (laughs) 
real people to like sort of like look up to and like have a and to like learn something new from them. Like I don't know, like who doesn't like that? But one of the things that we try to do with Switchblade Sisters and you know with all of the Maximum Fun shows is try to maybe cut through that slog of just dark, dark muck that is the internet and be just. One shining little bright piece of joy. Because it's like it's important to know how there is injustice in the world, but but it's also important to sort of like revel in the really cool creative stuff that is already here. Yeah, and you know maybe that inspires people to make more things that will entertain other people and send out great messages. And I don't know, I'm such a Pollyanna about all of this. You know, a realist Pollyanna. You're from the Midwest. I'm from the Midwest, and so that's my hope. So that's one of the reasons why I feel like people should be um, considering becoming a member of Maximum Fun. And there's multiple levels that you can that you can donate at. You can do five dollars a month. You could do ten dollars a month. You could do twenty dollars a month. And, you know, if you don't have a job, you know, then give us a five star review and help us out that way. But any little bit that you can afford, just $5 a month, actually helps us make these shows. But what if I want to donate, like, a Looney Tunes sweatshirt from the 90s a month? I mean, you can definitely send that. But also, <laughs> also, consider at least maybe a five-star review if you love the show. Um, so I think that one thing I noticed about Switchblade Sisters is that you tend to ask female filmmakers different questions than I feel like a lot of male interviewers do. Can you talk about that a little bit? I am going to tell people that the questions that we ask are based mostly in craft and film history, which is something I think a lot of folks don't expect women to answer for some reason, which doesn't make any sense. If you're a director and you're doing this for a living, you have a very good sense of film history, of a very good sense of film craft. It's it's your whole life. Your whole brain is a Pinterest board. Your whole brain. Um, and so uh, that's the questions that we try to ask here. Um, I don't ever want to call attention to the fact that someone is a female-identifying creator. That is <laughs> not what I ever want to say, even though this is about, you know, like, this is, we all have women on the show. But I don't want to call attention to it. Once they get on the show, then we just talk about movies. And it's amazing the reactions that we get from both, you know, men, women, non-binary folks who write in um, into us and then tweet at us, too, that, that they all find inspiration in this. Like, there's, there is no gender that matters. It's just kind of filling the space of, of interviews that that don't exist with women directors. It's just brain stuff. It's brain stuff. Put brain stuff into your ear hole. (laughs) I mean, that's a tag. (laughs) And all you have to do if you want to donate the regular way without a a Looney Tunes sweatshirt and become, you know, a $5, $10, $20, $35 a month uh, member of Maximum Fun is just go to MaximumFun.org slash donate. Okay, now back to our interview with Tamara Davis. Welcome back. You're listening to Switchblade Sisters. I'm April Wolf, and I'm here today with Tamara Davis. Hi, Tamara. Hi. We're talking about the heat. Um, so Paul Feig has clearly developed a special relationship with Melissa McCarthy, which we love. He's nurtured her from a bit actor in Bridesmaids um, to action leads in Spy, Ghostbusters, and The Heat. Uh, each film, he's given her like a slightly different persona. 
She gets to kind of stretch her wings. And arguably, I think that these are the best roles that she's had um, with any director. If she gets to work with other directors, like if he lets her, it seems. <laughs> but I've seen a few recurring folks in your films. And I'm really curious about your relationship with Drew Barrymore specifically, because that's now carried over into television because I think you've done some Santa Clarita Diet, which uh, is her show on uh, Netflix. Mm-hmm. And I would love to know, is there just an ever-present desire to keep working with her, to cast specific parts for her? I think like Paul Feig, when he talks about Melissa McCarthy, he's just like, it's a fun experiment to see what he can make her do next. <laughs> That's so fun. Um I don't know. I mean, I feel like when Drew and I, we first worked together, she did my first movie. I was 29 at the time, and I think she was 15 when I first met her. Mm -hmm. And um, I fell madly in love with her. I just thought she was the most incredible, like, I don't know. I just, I believed in her. She was at a place where she, everybody, like, had, you know, said, oh, she's just, like, you know, a bad party girl. And she was like... I am an actress. I want to keep working. Nobody will give me jobs right now. Um, I really want to do this part. And I was like, okay, I believe in you and I trust you. So we immediately, like, came at it from this, like, I don't know, a, a position of, like, I don't know. We She moved in with me and my husband. And we just had, we had the best. We had really a, a close time. And from that, we did a few movies together. I think she's been in three of my films or four of my films. And then now working in television yeah. with her. Um, You know, I just I love her. I think she's like one of the most amazing human beings. I wish I could see her more. She's living in New York now, so I don't get to see her as much. But um, she's she's just fun, you know, and she really works hard. She really like commits and she really, you know, she's a professional. And I really like to work with people that are professionals and that are also good to the people around them. Like she's very, you know, she's really kind to people around her. So she's a good person. So I don't know. I would love to continue to work with her. I think she's so talented. Um, But the two of us do like sometimes so many different things. So I was so happy that I got to do Santa Clarita Diet, which was super fun. I feel like you, Chris Rock, you've worked with multiple times as well. Yeah. Um, I mean, I feel like I did that with the same thing with music videos. There's something about like the vulnerability that you have as a performer that I understand as when I grew up, I wanted to be an actress. And I, I really understand that feeling that when you're in front of the camera, you're vulnerable in a way. And it really takes a lot of trust when you're working with a director that when a director really gets the best of you, they see the part of you that you feel also like that's the person that I am. And to get somebody that understands that about you, it not only makes you happy about your work, it also connects you to that person. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I'm so grateful that I've had those connections with people and they turn into being my friends. And I, it's just it's one of the my favorite things, because not only do I admire their work, I also am so um, lucky to have their friendship. So, yeah, like I continued to stay close with Chris or Adam or, you know, that was Kim Gordon just texted me because I'm in the neighborhood. I'm like, let's have lunch. You know, so you're just mm-hmm. you can you get these connections with people that you grow up together in this crazy world and, you know, trying to be in this entertainment industry. And there's something that um, I don't know you you can connect with. Um, I want to I want to get to a thing that is I don't I don't know if it's unique to Paul Feig or if it's unique to comedy directors, but he has said before that he loves test screenings more oh. than anything else. Yeah. 
because he loves um, not getting – he doesn't look at anything that people write. Mm-hmm. All he does is just, like, listen to the recordings of when people laugh. Yeah. Because he felt um, – he still feels that people will often be embarrassed about what they laugh at or that they will kind of censor themselves later on and be like, no, I don't want to do this. So for the tracheotomy scene in The Heat, which is just, like – crazy it goes over the top and yeah. he wasn't sure if they they should do it and in fact they were like no this is the one time where like sandra bullock's character is going to be like um i know what i'm doing and really it just goes horribly horribly wrong to the point where she has to like admit like i have no idea what i'm doing <laughs> it's right here i'm gonna make a small incision let go my hand let go my hand let go my hand i'm gonna make a small incision the reason i'm doing this oh oh god is because you're choking I'm going to cut in. Wow, okay. Just a little bigger. Wow, okay. It goes in deeper than I thought. So I'm going to insert my fingers in here because what's your, happening don't is... Put your finger in the, don't put your finger in wow, there. That feels a lot different. There's the membrane, okay? It's a, a fucking different. horror show. Don't put your fingers in there. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to insert the straw in the hole, and it's going to allow the oxygen to get to your brain. Now, if you're going to one moment, you're going to feel the oxygen flow into your brain. That's there we go. That's oxygen. Jesus Christ, oh my God. Oh my God, that's a lot of blood. Him? Oh my God. Oh, oh Jesus. Oh. oh my God, there's so much blood. I don't know what I'm doing. You did this. Oh, it's an ambulance coming. And in the test screenings of that, apparently everyone was like, no, you have to get rid of the tracheotomy thing. But when they recorded it, it also got the biggest laugh. And so he was like, ah. Like, are you censoring yourself later on because you felt guilty about laughing about this ultra-violent thing that I put into this comedy? You know, like, That's it's so just funny. bloody. It's right. <laughs> so, like, what um, – do you so do funny. test screenings oh, that you, you ha- like well, – Of course. Like, A, you have to do them if you're doing studio films for sure. But yeah. I love them. I agree. They're – really, they're, they make you – like, I could lose, like, five pounds of sweat, like, doing it. I get so nervous. It's really crazy because you feel like you're standing in front of a screen and they're going to throw tomatoes at you. So it's really hard, especially your first ones. But you really, really, really learn a lot. And I I have always felt that way. I went to film school down the road at L.A. City College, and I knew that when I first showed my films that it was all about trying to reach the people. Mm-hmm. Like if my audience liked what I was doing, I was making it – that was like what I was after. And like you do these movies, and I prefer to get that as my feedback than notes from studio executives because I could be like – you know, I don't know. I I had a situation on Half Baked where they wanted me to take out the opening of the movie because it was like kids smoking pot. And so they were like, you've got to take that out. And I was like, can we just screen the movie and see how the audience reacts to the film? And, you know, and I, they were like ready to cut the scene out of my film, but they all were in the screening room. And when the, when the audience freaked out at that opening and they were laughing so hard, the studio exec looked at me and is like, all right, you can keep your beginning of your film (laughs) and I was like oh my god but like thank god you know so Mm -hmm. I feel that that the audience helps me because I'm making a film for that audience and I'm lucky a lot of times when I can work with a studio executive that I respect and you know has experience and I you know that's awesome but I my true person that I'm making it for isn't you know I'm you know when you're making a film like that you're making it for that audience you know the the, I think drama directors despise the test screening, but I'm, so I'm starting to read, you know, comedy directors because Paul Fick says that he's been he starts doing them two weeks into um, his his editing process. Like oh, he's he's I, like out there testing it right away. Yeah. And he I think he, he gets like super high on it. Like yeah. he's like, yes, you know, yeah. like this is my thing. Like I get. And so what he had said is that um, uh, he does that. And then when he's shooting, 
he is never worried because he exhausts every scene to its possible thing. So when there's a test screening where it doesn't go well, he's like, ah, fuck it. You know, like, well, I have all these other options. Like, I don't even care. He said, um, I want to exhaust this the scene by the time we leave it. The crew half the time is just ready to murder me at the end of the scene because we'll just keep going and going and going. But I don't like to do reshoots. Um, we're so dependent on the test screening process. We have a test screening every week starting a couple weeks into my director's cut. We want to have a lot of material because we want to be able to be like, oh, that joke, that joke doesn't work. Let's try this. Or if this joke kind of worked, we can be like, this one can work better. So that to me... Wow. It's just, you know, like he doesn't do reshoots, right? And this I is know, an... but who could do reshoots anyway? It's like that's that's like hard to do and they're expensive. They're very so... expensive. But it's yeah. a smart way to work where you're 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 exhausted. You have so many options, so many possibilities. I guess so. I mean, I feel like it's a smart way to work, but it's also that's what big budget comedies can let you do cuz I, I mean, I've never yeah. had that luxury. I have I usually look at what I have to do in a day and I've got 6 pages to mm-hmm. shoot or 8, you know, it, but if you're doing those big studio movies, yeah, you've got to figure out how you're going to shoot three pages in, you know, 12 hours. You have a lot of time to do as many reshoots as you want. But, you know, sadly, I don't, you know, I think that that's probably what I would do if I had that luxury is just like, because otherwise we would go home in 10 hours. I, I would love to talk a little bit about something that comedies don't get to talk about that oh, much. Oh, good. Um, so for this one, they really did want to shoot in Boston. So uh-huh. they did. Yeah. Um, and it turned out that they got to Boston and Paul Feig had looked at the um, old Boston Herald building, mm-hmm. which um, obviously housed the newspaper and I think some like all the printing stuff. And it had like ink, you know, just the smell of ink in it. But it was just this huge old building that was kind of slated for demolition. And so he looked at that and was like, oh, my God, we could build sets and shoot the whole fucking thing in here. Yeah. And um, that's essentially what they did for a lot of it. And it was funny because um, apparently there was no air conditioning <laughs> and it was a very, um, very hot, hot summer where they were uh, shooting. And he said that um, they wouldn't let him bring in air conditioning. And there was like 60 years worth of dust in there. Oh, wow. And um, every time you blew your nose that it would be black um, he said, we're convinced we all took 10 years off our lives. Um, and that's something, I mean, like, what a what a neat thing, though, that they got to build, like, what they wanted yeah. in this in this building. And yeah. I know that you've shot on a variety of places. Like, you've done, you found locations by scouting, but you've also shot on, like, studio um, sets. Um, the one I can remember specifically that I know is a studio set when you uh, shot with Snoop Dogg. Um, oh, that was Bay. so funny. Because that yes. was a stoop where I was just like, yeah. oh, that stoop <laughs> is definitely on the set. That was a funny day. Um, how how do you prefer to make a movie? Are you looking for, like, organic locations? Would you love to build your own sets? Like, what is what is optimal for for a director? To have my name on the call sheet, director Tamara Davis, come here today at 7 (laughs) a.m. You know what I mean? Like, I'm so grateful that I get to show up and work as much as I do and love what I do that I don't care if I'm shooting in your kitchen or on a soundstage (laughs) or in the backseat of a car. Um, I love, love, love filming. And so I don't know. To me, I don't really care. Like, I would go anywhere with the camera to film something that I am passionate about. So, um, I I mean, I I love all of it. I'm like a really crazy person that I'm sitting on a camera process trailer and we're shooting, like, 
you know, driving across the Brooklyn Bridge or in a cornfield or, you know, on a cushy soundstage or, you know, in a crappy apartment in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. It's all romantic to me. I love every minute of it. Like even today I walked on, we had to do a read through of a TV show I'm doing and I walked on a soundstage and I just stood there and I smelled the smell of the soundstage. Like it was like smelling cookies to me. I was like so excited. God, what does the soundstage smell like? Like carpentry and you know because they've like been building sets and it's just like this big empty space and and I don't know it just it's you can it has a smell and I it's just I would I like it all I like it all what's the most difficult place that you've had to shoot um I mean a lot of times you're shooting sometimes at night on an in an alley because you know you need it to look like a out night you know at night in an alley and you really are filming where it smells like crap and poop and you know it really is that if you could smell that that's really what it smells like um so you know those kinds of shoots are hard or when it's super cold but i mean i am sadly i'm in the i don't know i'm grateful but it's like you know as a director i can sit there and like it, i could be practically in my living room i'm watching two tv screens they have, usually have like a blanket on me or a little heater next to me so it's not so uncomfortable but um, but I've definitely – I did an extreme sports film where I had to like, you know, sit in snow or, you know, you're in like extreme weather conditions. But um, I don't know. I'm just so grateful to any time that I get to drive off and that's my job that day is to direct something is a dream. Um, I I would love to talk about – creating relationships between your actors Mm -hmm. on set. Because in The Heat, you have this undeniable chemistry between Sandra Bullock and Melissa McCarthy, which um, apparently they had immediately bonded on set. Yeah. um, Which I think people forget, you know, that Sandra Bullock is goofy as hell. Like they forget that, you know, if you rewatch Speed... She she's is hilarious. Congeniality. No, she's, she's amazing. She's so funny, and I love. I love thinking about that. In Speed, she was cast in that film, like kind of specifically because she was the only one who could, who could bring Keanu out of his shell. Aww. He was like so shy, and she was just so goofy yeah. that they were like, "Oh, That's so this sweet. is perfect." So, um, I'm I'm curious. You know, it, Paul Feig got so lucky. I yeah, think with, with these, that combo, yeah, no, they were amazing together. It works. Yeah, it's amazing. But yeah. it's, it, I mean, those actors did it themselves. But I'm wondering if you ever had to have have had to make like manufacture friendships on set. You know, I'm thinking like people will get mad at me if I don't ask you about Crossroads. Oh, I loved Crossroads. That was my, <laughs> I loved that movie. So you've got Zoe Saldana, you got Taryn Manning, yeah. and you got Britney Spears. Yeah, um, best friends going on a cross country yeah. road trip, learning about themselves. Yeah, um, written by Shonda Rhimes. Exactly, yeah. written by Shonda. And it's, her first film. It's, I know. Uh, I mean. What is it like having to have these three women and making them seem like they're best friends? Did you have to do do you have to do anything like icebreakers with actors? Like what did you have to do on set to to kind of make sure that everyone's bonded? Well, 
I mean, on that specifically, we I was we were so lucky we got to have rehearsals. So we did, I think, like two weeks of rehearsals where we just got together and worked like six hours a day in a room kind of like acting out the scene. So spending that much time even before you get to shoot with each other was an incredible opportunity for, you know, and I think that they also bonded on their own, like they'd go out and have lunch or go hang out and, mm-hmm. you know, do a little of that. I mean, it's a little harder with Brittany from that time, but she really made herself available for those, you know, f- to, to you know, be in those rehearsals. And, and, and I think that that was like the thing that we found is a lot of that film was shot on location. And the moment you got away from all the craziness, you really just had three normal girls. And I think that that's what happens when you put three girls in a car, or three girls in a room, they start to really bond and get together. And um, we knew both Zoe and Taryn were super cool girls. Like my sister's a casting agent and mm-hmm. she cast the film. And so, um, you know, we knew that they weren't girls that were going to, yeah, I don't know, that were cool. And so um, the combination just, they just started all really, you know, gelling and bonding and all that stuff was very, very real. And I think that some of that is just, um, I don't know, just that excitement that you get when you get to work with another actor. Actors are very generous people usually, and they really want to work back and forth. It it helps them when that relationship is good. So, you know, I don't know. I, I feel like... I feel like when it works, it works really well. When it doesn't work, you just have to like step back and let the let just try to always be professional. I mean, but it's. I feel like you're you're saying earlier that there wasn't a lot of pressure on you to to make things um, that would be the most successful in the world because you were working with up up and coming artists. But you were working with Britney Spears on this, and at that time, she had already had a few hits like this no she was gigantic she was did that yeah big yeah yeah and yeah on that one it was really cool because she really wanted to experiment she wanted to you know play with who people thought she was and see a different side of her and i like that she was willing to take a risk you know and and um i originally said i didn't i said no to the movie and then i went and i met her and kind of the same thing that happened with drew happened with her is like we just immediately bonded and i believed in her and she was just like i want this so bad and i will really work hard for this and I'll do every rehearsal, you know, whatever. And she really did. And so that was that was super awesome. But, I mean, the pressure was more that I, I was to also – it was important for me to, to provide a safe space for her to have this creativity and to play and do this this role. And the same thing with, you know, she was the one that hired Shonda Rhimes. Like their company was like they brought Shonda on. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we were all like this incredible team. My producers were amazing and Carly. We were like four, five women, six women that we were telling this story together. And I feel like that – that's that stayed like every single day on the set. And then even in post, we were this great team trying to create one vision. Um, so you said that, you know, Britney Spears was taking a risk. And I was wondering if you could say like any scenes where you felt, you know, in, in the crossroads or points, you know, story points where you're like, oh, this is different for her. Um, I mean, for the movie was so fun. I mean, the the opening scene, that was for me, like her dancing on the bed in her underwear. That was like, oh, my God, this is like a dream come true for Mm -hmm. me singing a Madonna song. But I feel like for her, her risk was like she has this very funny scene where she tries to lose her virginity to Justin Long on like I think it's like prom night or something Mm -hmm. at graduation night in bed. Please don't laugh. You're you're killing this. No, don't you want your first time to be special? Oh, yeah, but this is special. Listen, 
Do you want to spend the rest of your life knowing that you did it for the first time with your lab partner? Yes, yes, I do. And I'll tell you why. Because yeah. do you know what it's like for a guy to go to college a virgin? Henry. No, I'm telling you, they, 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 they're ostracized. You know, they treat them like lepers. And she had to do comedy, and I think it was the first time that she's ever really done comedy. Yeah. And this kid was kind of an unknown at the time. I think it was like his first movie maybe even. And, you know, Justin is awesome. And so I think that that was really a risk for her because she had to, you know, kind of like – and she had to, you know, take her clothes off and be funny at the same time. And so I think that that – that was really fun because she trusted us. She trusted Justin and I and our, you know, we both have done comedy before so that she felt comfortable with that. But she also was open enough to understand what is funny about her and how can she um, be a funny person. And mm. I, I thought that that scene, um, I love that scene. I think she's very funny in it. We're going to take a, another quick break and then we're going to come right back. I'm going to ask you some questions about um, uh, choreography. Oh. <laughs> okay, we'll be right back. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break from this interview with Tamara Davis to talk about the Max Fun Drive. And I'm here joined by Ingu Kang in the studio. Hi, Ingu. Hi. Yeah, that's, this is <laughs> this is time when Ingo says hello. <laughs> okay, so like, how do you feel about bonus content? <laughs> wow, that wasn't a leading question at all. <laughs> I mean, what would you do for exclusive bonus content? And I'm talking about... Like six, seven days worth of just like unending bonus content from Maximum Fun. I guess if I were going to channel Jennifer Lawrence and Joy, that movie that David O. Russell uh, wrote on a Coke binge in about <laughs> two days, um, I would say that you can donate on a multitude of levels, such as $5 per month, $10 per month. $20 per month, and also more dollars per month. Oh, what? <laughs> For just the $5 tier on that, you could get all of this exclusive bonus content. It's pretty miraculous. What is the bonus content, April? Well, for uh, Switchblade Sisters, we brought to you an hour of speed talk. I'm talking Keanu Reeves and Sandra Bullock, and I'm joined by the ladies from Lady to Lady Comedy. They are they're amazing. We talk about speed. We have so much fun. And we get into film history, and I bring out their film nerdum, and they bring out everything that is funny that I can't ever put into the show on my own. <laughs> Do you also talk about Joss Whedon, who ghost wrote, or a script doctor? He, yeah, he, you know, technically wrote, I would say, most of that film. Also, that movie's other, like, writer DNA comes from Graham Yost of just. Of Justified, which it's I true. find really, really fascinating. Okay, so you get a ton of content about speed, which hopefully we piqued your interest with our talk of Joss it's Whedon star- and Graham Yost. <laughs> it's starring literally like the two most pe- beautiful people of the 90s oh, outside God, of so Winona Ryder. So definitely you want to get that bonus content. You want to get the bonus content of all of our shows. I'm telling you, this stuff is packed. There's so many amazing guest stars on all of these. And then let's say, let's say, let's say that you donated you donated ten dollars a month for your membership. You would get all of that bonus content, including including your choice of one of I think twenty eight different enamel pins that are designed by Megan Lincott. Um and 
also a MaxFun membership card. But I got to tell you, the Switchblade Sisters enamel pin is pretty rad. I'm looking at it right now, and it is very, very metal. Gift it to all of your Switchblade Sisters. (laughs) Um, And then let's say, oh, my God, $20 a month. Let's say you had that kind of expendable income. I'm a podcaster, so I don't, I guess, like really know what it is to have $20 per month. But (laughs) if someone were to have $20 per month, what would they get, April? Oh, my gosh. They would get uh, their choice of pin. They would get all that bonus content. And then and then they would also get the Max Fun family cookbook that is uh, lovingly curated for you by Max Fun hosts, including me. Um, and it, it contains dozens of recipes uh, from cocktails to desserts and everything in between. Our show donated a family recipe of mine, which is late night chili dogs and jello shots. Okay, so here's the thing. <laughs> so... April is a gluten-free vegan. And so if you ever want to know what the torture of being a (laughs) gluten-free vegan is on your tongue, then you should get this cookbook and find out what horrifying, what a horrifying life April leads every single day. Well, the thing is, I also gave a vegan gluten-free alternative in my recipe, so... You know, wait. You can, so you have like a I've got two different. Full... I've got the traditional, okay, and then I've got my my amended amended that my grandmother would just roll her eyes at. I'm sure. <laughs> and then on top of that, for the twenty dollars a month, you also get some space themed cookie cutters. So if you want to cut your chili into like the shape of a rocket ship, then you're set. Do it, do it. In fact, you know, I recommend it. Um, and let's say that you had $35 per month expendable income that you would want to donate to uh, Max Fun shows. Like you're a lover of everything that we do and you want to make sure that we keep making all of the things that you love. Um, you would get all of the things I mentioned and, in addition, one liter juice carafe. And it's beautifully and permanently engraved with the Max Fun Rocket logo. I love the notes always say, not just for juice, like, but honestly, (laughs) like, you're listening to the show, you know, it's not just for juice. (laughs) You're, you're going to put something in it. It's for rice gruel. Yeah, it's mostly for rice gruel. But most of all, if you, if you donate, you know, at any of these levels, what you get is the joy of knowing that you are supporting creators. Um, everyone who is making a show for Max Fun, you know, this is a, a creator-owned network, and we we survive on the donations that you give to the show. It, it helps us build out our shows, and we get to have um, diverse shows, um, uh, like Who Shot Ya, another show that I've never heard of it. <laughs> Ingu is, it good? is Ingu is like. One of the most beloved characters to ever appear on Who Shot Yes. She knows what That's it is. That's the one I hear. <laughs> and also Switchblade Sisters, you know? There's, there's like... <laughs> God, she's such a good partner for these. Anyway, Ingu. <laughs> but also, even if $35 a month sounds like a lot, it's literally like basically a dollar a day. Like, I feel like you guys have like a dollar a day to support really great, like, progressive, funny entertaining content that will keep you sane while you're in your car. Yeah, I like I like considering it like um, how many fancy coffees a month can you afford for max fun? You know, if you break... Okay, Huffington Post editorial. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Ingo. <laughs> 
But remember, you can donate at any tier. All you have to do is go to MaximumFun.org slash donate. And I got to tell you, the Max Fun Drive is ending very soon. Friday the 13th, in fact, which is a really wonderful day for Switchblade Sisters. Wait. <laughs> I don't think that's the right song. But it is a song. <laughs> Great point, April. And I want to say one last thing that I am so, so grateful to all the people who have been supporting our show during the Max Fun Drive and then outside of the Max Fun Drive. The things that you guys have been saying online bring me to tears. Um, and I mean, in a good way, like you're not being mean, like you're being really, really kind She's and really generous. She's really crying out that rice squirrel. I'm crying it out. <laughs> and uh, all existing and upgrading members, you guys are just the best. New, existing, everyone, everyone in this community just brings me so much joy. And I appreciate everything that you've said. And I, I literally took screenshots of some of the things that you wrote on Twitter, and I sent them to my mom. Because she has no idea what I do, but at least she knows people like me. (laughs) It's the saddest thing. (laughs) Okay, so remember, MaximumFun.org slash donate. And the MaxFun Drive is ending on Friday the 13th. Now back to the interview with Tamara Davis. Welcome back to Switchblade Sisters. I'm April Wolf, and I'm here talking today to Tamara Davis about the movie The Heat. Yes. Um, so I, I promised a question about choreography, and I will deliver. Um, the dance oh. routine in the middle of The Heat, Crazy. where the two women are drunk and completely um, in that you know, bar. just obliterated. They, they, uh, that was all improvised. Oh, my God. And so Feek had said that... Um, quote, what's fun about that was that wasn't in the script. I was just like, I want to see you guys dance like when you're drunk. I want to see a dance number out of the two of you. So first they were kind of like, really? But then the compromise was we won't choreograph it. We'll do it. But we wanted it to feel real. So Sandra came up with some stuff before we shot under the guise of some dance that she used to do in high school. And now in a drunken state, she's teaching it to Mullins. Um, So they just turned it on. They didn't want it to be perfect. They were like, let's turn on the camera. And then, like, Sandra Bullock is going to do this. And then um, Melissa McCarthy said that she, her only job was to do mirroring. So she was just like, I'm not going to learn it. I'm just going to mirror what she does as she's doing it. And so everything was very spur of the moment just happening. Yeah. Um, I mean, that scene is really one of the funniest dance scenes ever. I mean, dance can be so funny. I I love dance. Um, well, that's that's amazing that that was uh, just totally improvised because that that looked brilliant. I mean, I don't know who you could hire to choreograph a scene like that. Do you know what I mean? You can't really hire a dance yeah. person to be like, show me this. Show so, me something terrible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can't. So, um, I, you know, I think that then it's what's important to do is how you film it, you know, because you can't just that thing that was spontaneous only happened that one moment, but now you have to get it from like whatever gazillion different angles. So they Mm -hmm. have to keep repeating it. So I think that becomes like, you know, part of the style or the technique of how you cover that dance performance so that you can intercut it and, you know, um, work with pacing and timing as well, which is comedic. Um, I don't know. I love dance sequences so much. I work on a dance show a lot called Star with Lee, um, Lee Daniels' mm-hmm. show that's on Fox. And I get to do gigantic big dance numbers, and it's the funnest thing in the world. And um, I don't know. It's I love it. I love it. Uh, but, yeah, with comedy, it's interesting. 
I, I'm working on something right now, and I had to go back and I watched um, a clip from The Nutty Professor. It's actually um, a film that Paul is producing, so I'm hoping my fingers are crossed, but it's like a female comedy. I think maybe now he's so busy he can't do them himself. So like, <laughs> I'm like, yes, please, opportunity. Um, and so I watched this. Um, it was Jerry Lewis, and you couldn't write the scene. It's like he blows up something in the chemistry lab, and then he has to go in and have a meeting with the prof- you know, the head of the school where he basically gets in trouble. There's nothing written. It's how he physically walks into a room, how he sits into a chair. How It's what his performance is. There's no way that you could write that on a script and be like, oh, it's so funny, Jerry Lewis enters a room and mm-hmm. he's and so you really if you want to make a comedy like you have to hire a Melissa McCarthy you know you need to hire a comedian or somebody goofy like Sandra Bullock that you didn't know that she had this in her mm-hmm. but you give her that freedom to express that side of her and um and and support that and make her feel like she's doing great with it so that she'll do it again and again so um I don't know I feel like with their dance sequence. That's crazy that they got to do that. And um, it is one of the funniest scenes in the movie. Yep. That bar scene is really interesting because, I, I mean, it's all yeah, just... drinking. Yeah. It's, yeah. And uh, <laughs> Melissa McCarthy and Sandra Bullock said that, like, they were having a great time, but, like, no one on the set was having... Like, everyone was just, like... Because they had to film it. Like, Paul Feig said yes. he was going to exhaust, exhaust the it. scene. And they were, like, getting loopy. Yeah. And everyone else was just like, oh, my God, can we go home? Yeah. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, I wanted to talk about creating characters through costumes, which um, I, I never know how much input people get to have when they're directing in TV. I know it's kind of different for each one. Um, but film, you get to really yes. create this character, um, especially with funny costumes. Um, and Pulfy was saying, you know, he wants to create someone who could exist in the real world still. Yeah. Um, and he was when he was creating Mullins, he said... Quote, she had it very much in her head that, um, Melissa McCarthy, that she liked the idea that Mullins was influenced by 80s lady rappers. So (laughs) that's interesting. Um, We found this old reference photo of Patti Smith with her hair kind of wild like that. So Melissa really locked in on like that. It was going to be a combination of like Patti Smith and 80s lady rappers. Oh, my God. Like Queen Latifah. Yeah. And then apparently the costume designer, um, Catherine Marie Thomas, came up with the idea of a vest. And so the vest was the, the thing best. where they were just like, oh, a vest. And Melissa McCarthy really latched onto that. And then they just kind of figured it out from there. And then as he was doing other things, they would send him photos. They yeah. would send him photos of Melissa in these different costumes. And then um, he would look at her body language in the photos. Yeah. And if she was more relaxed, then he would be like, yes, that's the one. Yeah. So if she was stiff, then he was like, I don't like this. I don't like this. And then they just kind of like went from there of like whatever she seemed to be more like comfortable in. Yeah. Just like a subconscious kind of like, yeah, I'm into this, you know, like the goofier she would get in the pictures. Yeah. Have you like, I would love yeah. to talk about like some of the costumes that you designed. Half-baked. Oh, my God. That was so crazy. I mean, like, <laughs> we just laughed the whole time. I mean, I feel like that's a great fitting, you know, if you have a good costume designer that can create a situation for your actress that she goes into the wardrobe room yeah. and she can feel like she's still having fun because usually you're, like, exhausted and, you know, come put these things on. Let me take a Polaroid. So, first of all, 
kudos to that costume designer because that's a good one that you have somebody that the actress can put something on and kind of give you a feel like I like this I don't like this this makes me feel happy this you know and yeah. they pose for you with that and I feel like that's that's amazing but sometimes you have to be careful because if the actress really likes it she'll definitely pose really well in that thing yeah. which might be deceptive because you might have a different vision of it so you know <laughs> what I mean like you have to really you know pay attention to how that also looks and you know don't be too guided by that you have to make sure that it's part of the vision that you have so the other thing that I liked what he said and that's how you know in all these things references are so important so like him Mm -hmm. having those references and you know saying no I want her to you know have this Roxanne Shantae big hoop earrings but she also is wearing this that all that stuff you need that you know that's that's how they come about like in Half-Baked Jim's character he was basically Hippie Steve. The, you know, I'm married to Mike D from the Beastie Boys, and they had a um, pot dealer named Hippie Steve. He used to wear that, like, fanny pack and wear those, um, you know, Birkenstocks. And, yeah. Like, that was his look. So I just, like, made him look like Hippie Steve. And it's funny. I have a teenage son, and he, re- he like, really wanted now to. Now he dresses like yeah, Hippie he Steve. Was, like, oh, my he, God. He got the fanny pack because he was like, look, Dad looks like Hippie Steve. And Dad's like, how? you know this reference like (laughs) you know so I think that you know either from people that you see on the street or friends of yours or cultural references we have to pull from everything to kind of come up with some way to communicate with your costume designer your production designer your DP the look in the world that we want to create and I mean, I I like that 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 hippie Steve, you know, that is like a a real life reference, you oh, know. Yeah. There's cause, uh, there's a lot of interview stuff that um, Melissa McCarthy and Paul Feig were talking about, where like they 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 want to go funny, but they they still do want to make it yeah that, real. It's real, like that guy really existed and he really looked like that, and we laughed, you know, what we saw, you know. So yeah, I think that it, that comedy comes from the real world, but then all of a sudden something unexpected happens, yeah. and that's what creates the laugh. Is like it's got da da da, and you think it's going to go da, but instead it gives you something different, and that creates some uh, a laugh. I want to talk a little bit about music too, yeah. because music is so integral to comedies, and there are some songs that are definitely overused, especially when we're talking about like studio comedies. Um, the Heat, you know, it's a big budget studio comedy, right? Right. It's a action, so they've got there's like certain cues that action movies always have, certain right. cues that comedies have. Um, but you've got you've got staples like D Lights, Groove is in the Heart, right. um, Journey's Lights, Air Supplies, You're Every Woman in the World to Me when they're like dancing together, yeah. um, and of course Parliament's Flash. Light, which is in so many movies. Um, but music supervisor uh, Randall Poster, uh, yeah. he throws in some wild cards. And I think that's where you can like see where you're like, oh, he does know things about music. Like you put in Angel Hayes' Working Girls, Mountains Sitting on a Rainbow, and uh, Iljaz Hassani's uh, Tisamo Zanaz. Yeah. And I should know that Poster is uh, Wes Anderson's longtime collaborator, collaborator, and he's responsible for some of those amazing soundtracks with uh, oh, yeah. some of the— Yeah, the... Randall Poster's legendary. Like, I wish I could work with him one day. I've met him a couple times, always trying to get him on stuff. But, um, yeah, he's he's legendary. And he has a very deep knowledge of music, and also people bring him stuff so much because of who he is. Yeah, which is—I mean, it, it's amazing that he can, that he can fit in some— un unsung tracks. Yeah. And, you know, because you do have to work within a a studio's constraints of like what an audience is familiar with to to cue something, I think. Um, It seems that way. 
I guess so. I mean, I feel like music, a lot of times when you talk about a studio thing, it becomes a money thing. So it's like yeah. how much money are they willing to pay for that cue? So, yeah. it's, so if you can give them a cue that, you know, there are certain big cues that you want to get a big song in there. And then it just becomes like how much that song is going to be, you know, and how recognizable it is and what it does to the scene. So um, but then there's so many other places that you still need to have music that you'd rather not spend so much money and you have an opportunity to bring something new to the plate. So Mm -hmm. so that's that's really exciting. But music, you know, all films need music, you know, from a horror, scary movie to a drama to a comedy. So music and film go hand in hand, you know, pretty much since the beginning. What's your biggest um accomplishment would you say like a song that you really wanted to have in a place in a movie that you guys were able to get god i don't even know like i don't i don't really even i don't even know like if i think of it that way so much i mean i'm always amazed at like i think i more think of in films i think of that um you know, with Adam working with him and he had all these like crazy songs because of who he is and his background mm-hmm. that he was like, it's got to be Mr. Roboto or it's got to be he pulls up and he plays, you know, oh man, I forget what these songs were. They were so crazy and they were so not the songs that I listened to. Yeah. And so it was so funny to just like. But Mr. Roboto was a really great uh, addition to that I know. scene, if I remember correctly, but I would have—I n- probably would have never been like, "Oh my God, we got to put Mr. Roboto here." Like that—that that wasn't in my wheelhouse. I'm—I'm I'm almost too. Cool. I don't want to say the word too cool, but like, <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, I never would go there. Like, you wouldn't put sticks in your. <laughs> no, I wouldn't. Put, I wouldn't. Although I, I, I understand it for humor, but that's why he's the comedian. Like, these songs are placed like strictly, they're hilarious. And so I feel like, in a weird way, for me with comedy, is sometimes my best act is stepping back and not like, you know, it's like and not putting my. Thing there, like mm-hmm. certain times I know to put my stamp on there, but other times I know to be like, actually, I'm going to just like step back and trust that Adam knows what he's talking about with this. And you know, I learned that with you know all those all the people that I work with, you know how important that is, and that that's also a good strength is to be like. You know, if uh, Dave says, you know, I think it's going to be really funny if we go into the to the apartment and the dog is dead and we like step on the dog as we like go into the apartment. There's the 30-year-old Tammy and, you know, whatever, me going like, oh, my God, don't step on the dog. That's so terrible. <laughs> you know, and then there's the director that's just like, awesome, do it. Let's see what happens. You know, like you just <laughs> – so, so you have to sometimes like get out of your own way sometimes and trust that comedian and be like, okay, let's try it. Like that sounds crazy, but um, – Let's let's do this. This is hilarious and have fun with that and not and I don't know. So so sometimes with music, you know, there's times where I'm like, oh, I'm so happy I got to use that song. And, you know, a film like Gun Crazy or we did mm-hmm. something in Crossroads and it was just so fun. But, you know, I don't know. I, I feel like it's 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 an interesting process and and music and film just it's there. You have a very it's an emotional connection people have with it. <laughs> I, that's probably the best answer. I'm I'm very happy to know that, that you and Adam Sandler were able to come to a yeah. consensus about sticks. And I'm glad that you have a, an appreciation for them now at yeah. this point. Yeah. Um, I want to thank you for coming in and oh, speaking sure. with me today about the heat yes. and about your own work. And thank you so much for listening to Switchblade Sisters. Next week, we'll be talking to Valley Girl and Real Genius director Martha Coolidge about The Big Sleep. 
If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you do, we'll read it on air. Like Liar Of, who said, I started listening to this podcast because I thought, hey, I love movies and I love genre things. And I love women. Not only did this podcast meet my expectations for being an entertaining discussion on some of my favorite things, but it far exceeded them by also integrating excellent conversations about the films that April's interlocutor... Oh my God, I can't believe you used that word, liar of interlocutor of the week helped to make opening the audience to a really more nuanced understanding of filmmaking, which they are sure to take with them into the films they later watch. I highly recommend learn more about film, hear more about your favorites and get ready to be introduced to some fantastic new faves. And also we've got something from Jill Lloyd Flanagan who says April Wolf is a very insightful critic and I derive a lot of inspiration from the show. They go so deeply into what makes a particular work of film work so well. I've gotten a lot of good recommendations for newer films to watch simply by who the guests are. I got a lot. I I love it when people write in and say that we've given them good homework. It's the best feeling in the world. So if you want to let us know what you think of the show, you can tweet at us at SwitchbladePod or email us at SwitchbladeSisters at MaximumFun.org. Please check out our Facebook group, Facebook.com slash groups slash SwitchbladeSisters. And please remember to check out MaximumFun.org slash donate to contribute to our show during the Max Fun Drive. Our producer is Casey O'Brien. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. This has been a production of MaximumFun.org. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.